When Easter rolls in, I love to eat the Cadbury cream eggs. I, uh, I've actually already eaten four of them, and uh, I know that doesn't sound very spiritual, but I believe we can eat chocolate for the glory of God, amen? Come on, come on, people, yes. So I'm curious, for those of you who watch a lot of TV, is the, is the clucking Cadbury bunny still on television? They're still showing the same commercial. Well, you might remember those commercials, and you really can't watch television these days without seeing a bunch of commercials. Uh, marketers will use anything from a clucking bunny to a, a dad eating Doritos at his wife's ultrasound in order to sell you something, uh, in hopes of getting you to believe something and then moving you to do something. Marketers want you to believe what they're saying, and then they want you to act upon what they're saying. And we respond to these in different ways. You might see a commercial, and you might reject it flat out because you don't believe it at all, and, uh, and you absolutely believe that it doesn't apply to your life. So a good example might be a commercial advertising the Baltimore Ravens. Uh, but here, here are a few other ways that you might respond. You see a commercial, you believe that it's true, but you don't believe that it applies to your life, and so you don't do anything about it. The, the latest Allstate commercial has mayhem in an attic, and he's carrying insulation, and he says this, check me out, I'm a do-it-yourselfer, and then bam, he crashes through the ceiling uh, down below, and at the end of the commercial, he says, so get an Allstate agent and be protected from mayhem like you. That's interesting. Home insurance is good. You probably believe in it. That you should have it, and, but let's say that you already have, have it with State Farm or some other company. You believe the commercial, but you don't do anything about the commercial because you don't believe that it applies to you. Here's another response. You see a commercial, you believe that it's true, you believe that it applies to you, but you still don't do anything about it. Healthy choice. Ran a humorous ad, and the guy in the commercial said this. I used to roll on one of the strictest diets out there, a juice fast. Healthy Choices new baked entrees inspired me to turn my life around. Did you know that, that food could do that? At the end, the tagline is, don't diet, live healthy. Now, besides advertising the Healthy Choice products, this is advertising a healthy lifestyle. So, let's be honest here, you believe that it's right to eat healthy and live a healthy lifestyle. You believe you should actually live that way, but even after January 1st, you still might eat the cheese puffs and run on Dunkin' instead of running on a treadmill, if you know what I'm talking about. So that's often the case for us. We don't feel like changing. And then there's this response. You see the commercial. You believe that it's true. You believe that it applies to you and you actually do something about it. You respond. So I was sitting uh, watching the Super Bowl this year, and a commercial came on advertising a new movie release for July with the title, Jason Bourne. I saw, I believed, and I immediately wanted to do something about the commercial. I love the films. And and if the content review meets my standards, I'll watch the movie. The commercial worked. 
I want to do something that the marketing executives want me to do. I will gladly do that something. Everybody responds to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Everybody. In some way. Some people reject it outright. They consider it irrelevant to their lives. They, they just couldn't care. Others say they believe it, and they know that it applies to them, but they still live as if it is totally irrelevant to their lives. They make no changes. It doesn't look like the resurrection means anything to them. But some people, some people believe and treasure the resurrection of Jesus Christ so deeply that it defines them. It defines them and it shapes every last part of their life. So my hope for you this morning is that you will see the resurrection of Jesus Christ, believe the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and walk in newness of life because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. My prayer is that the Holy Spirit of God would open the eyes of your heart to see the glory of Christ's resurrection and move you to trust it and compel you to walk in the newness of life, to live differently because he is alive. That's my prayer. That's my hope. That's my MO. God can give you faith this morning and a fresh start. Now, before we get into the Bible, as a pastor, these things are important to me. I need to be honest with you about something. Something that I think Satan has used for a very long time to deter people from believing in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, appear to contradict one another when it comes to the resurrection accounts. In a few of the minor details, do the four Gospels contradict each other? When you put the Gospels side by side, you'll notice a difference. You'll notice a difference. We need to be honest about that as Christians. There are seeming or apparent contradictions between the resurrection accounts. And many people, they look to those seeming contradictions and they just interpret them as actual contradictions. And then that leads them, uh, that undercuts the reliability of Scripture and they just reject the Bible altogether. They scrutinize the minor details with such skepticism that they lose sight of how unified the Bible actually is. I firmly believe that there are no contradictions in the Bible. God doesn't contradict himself. Contradiction is contrary to his nature. But there are some really tough textual issues when you look at the Bible. They're tough because God didn't see fit to reveal everything that is true. And we don't know and understand very much so, on the other hand, there is too much evidence which confirms the Bible's universal trustworthiness. So, it would be absurd to abandon the Scripture. So, we're kind of caught. We see things that are difficult to understand, yet we see an overwhelming amount of, of information and evidence that confirms the reliability of the Scripture, and we have to deal with a little bit of tension in God's Word. So, like many other true things in life, we're left with some mystery in the minor details of the gospel accounts. In fact, exact agreement among different 
eyewitness historical accounts often means collusion or conspiracy. With the historical methods, slight differences in historical records actually strengthen the credibility of the records if they agree on the big picture. If you're following me, this applies through history as well. The Gospels show striking unity where they need to show striking unity. The minor details, I don't want to suggest that the minor details aren't important. They are important, but they only serve to strengthen the big picture of the story. Think of it this way. Monet. Monet was a great impressionist painter. If you take one of Monet's paintings, let's say it was uh, the masterpiece Water Lilies, and you get really close to Monet. I mean, you put it like an inch from your face, and you stare at it for hours. It will largely look like globs of unintelligible color. It's not going to look like much. If you would scrutinize his brush strokes from up close, you may accuse Monet of being a hack. And you might miss his stunning brilliance that is more clearly seen when you start backing away from the piece, discerning how each of the different brush strokes works together to bring the painting to life. It's hard to, rec- to reconcile every minor detail of the resurrection accounts. Not to say it can't be done, but it's difficult. But understand what the Gospels were trying to do the writers of the Gospels, they were namely trying to communicate the historical truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and in that story, they are unequivocally united. Unequivocally united. Dr. William Lane Craig makes a good point about how harmonious the Gospel accounts really are. He says this, All four Gospels attest to these facts. Many more details can be supplied by adding facts which are attested by three out of four. So don't be misled by the minor discrepancies. Otherwise, this is so important, otherwise you're going to have to be skeptical about all secular historical narratives which also contain such inconsistencies which is quite unreasonable. So if you're going to reject the gospel accounts because of some of these small issues, you might as well just toss all of history out and believe nothing because all of history has some of these tensions within it. That's how history is. And the Bible is a historical book. Here's my point, and it's an important one to get. The Bible's account of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is reliable. Completely reliable. The Bible holds up under the fiercest scrutiny. Atheists, agnostics, naturalists, materialists, the Bible holds up. The Bible is God's word. The Bible is without error or contradiction. And the gospel writers wrote so that people could see the resurrection, believe the resurrection, and walk in the newness of life in light of the resurrection because of the resurrection. Excuse me. So here are a few things that I want to give you to help you see, believe, and by God's grace, if he so chooses to move, that you'd continue to be transformed by the resurrection. See that Jesus Christ's dead body was prepared appropriately for burial. See that Jesus Christ's dead body was prepared appropriately for burial. Jesus hung lifeless on the cross. He had died. The Sabbath of Passover week was fast approaching and the body of Jesus needed to be buried. 
Pilate released his body to a man named Joseph, and the Gospels tell us that Joseph was from Arimathea, a city of Judea. He was a good and righteous man. He was a rich man. He was a respected member of the council, or you could say the Sanhedrin, which was essentially the Jewish supreme court of the day. Yet Luke says that Joseph did not consent to the Sanhedrin's decision and action against Jesus. He was a dissenter. Joseph was looking for the kingdom of God, and he was a disciple of Jesus, though he hid that for fear of the Jews. But in John 19, Joseph went public. He risked. He showed courage in asking Pilate for Jesus' body. Joseph was a member of the Sanhedrin, and the Sanhedrin are the ones who put Jesus to death. Do you see the conflict? Joseph took a big risk. It was Joseph of Arimathea who reverently took down the body, battered and lifeless body of Jesus, the corpse. He took it down from the cross. He honored Jesus. In verse 39, we see Nicodemus again, the same guy who in John 3 went to talk to Jesus at night, and Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He was a ruler of the Jews, and so he was likely a member of the Sanhedrin as well. As Joseph, Nicodemus came to help Joseph prepare Jesus' body for burial, and he brought with him 75 pounds of spices, mixed myrrhs and aloes, uh, which they used to wrap Jesus' body. It was a very expensive gift for him to bring and to give. These two influential Jewish leaders risk for Jesus, carefully wrapping his body with clean linen cloths and spices according to the Jewish burial customs. Jews didn't embalm like the Egyptians did. They wrapped dead bodies uh, with cloth and spices, and they even packed spices beneath and around the body to disguise the odor. These two men helped substantiate the existence, life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But let's be honest, we weren't there. We, we didn't see it with our eyes. I mean, wouldn't, wouldn't that have been great? But, but we weren't. So if I'm saying see the resurrection, how can you see something when you weren't there? We see that Jesus was appropriately prepared for burial by reading John and the other gospels. Through the gospels, God takes us back into the past so that we can see. You see, John was in Jerusalem at the time of these events. He was an eyewitness of many of the events that he recorded, and input directly from Jesus shaped his writing ministry. Just because we didn't see it with our eyes doesn't mean we can't see it through the eyes of others. See the wrapped and prepared body of Jesus. Then, see that Jesus Christ's body was buried in a tomb. See that Jesus Christ's body was buried in a tomb. Verse 41 says, Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So Jesus was crucified on Golgotha, outside of Jerusalem, which was likely a short distance from the western wall of Jerusalem. Near Golgotha was a garden, maybe an orchard of some kind. Inside the garden was this brand new tomb. No one had ever used it, hewn out of rock. In fact, Joseph of Arimathea had cut the tomb out of rock. He may have even owned the garden, but we don't know that for sure. 
The hour was growing late, and the Sabbath uh, was fast approaching, so Joseph and Nicodemus laid the body of Jesus in this new tomb. Matthew and Mark added that Joseph rolled a great stone against the, the entrance of the tomb, which secured the tomb. Joseph of Arimathea was an important player in another fulfilled prophecy. We're seeing tons of fulfilled prophecy in John. Listen to this, Isaiah 53, 9. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Joseph of Arimathea was a rich man. This was fulfilling prophecy. Can you see that Jesus Christ was laid in a tomb? Can you see that a rock was sealed and rolled over the entrance? He was on the other side. He was inside. Can you see through the pen of another? There's more to see. See that Jesus Christ's body is no longer in the tomb. See that Jesus Christ's body is no longer in the tomb. This is great. I love this as a Christian. Archaeologists and scholars are still searching for the remains of the most famous man in history. Don't you love that? Nobody's found Jesus. John 20, verse 1 says this, Now on the first day of the week, that was Sunday, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. All four Gospels mention Mary Magdalene first. She uh, is a prominent figure in the story, and Mary saw that the stone had been taken away from the opening of the tomb. When she saw that, her heart sank. She was very concerned at that moment. And verse 2 shows the urgency of this moment. Mary ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have laid him. Urgent or concern. Oh no, what has happened? You see, a moved stone meant to her a moved body. She thought someone had tampered with the tomb and for good reason. Well, there was no body. Perhaps she thought the Roman soldiers had moved it. Maybe the Jewish leaders had moved it. Maybe grave robbers had come and actually stolen the body. That happened. Grave theft was a common crime in the time. Years later, Emperor uh, Claudius made it a capital offense, actually, uh, to destroy tombs, remove bodies from tombs, or to displace sealed stones. Grave theft happened. So Mary went straight to Peter and John. The the open tomb would have been disconcerting for a lot of people who loved Jesus. And Mary didn't immediately believe that Jesus was resurrected. When she saw this, her mind went to more plausible theories. Once Peter and John heard about the tomb, they ran together to see it for themselves. They They were probably troubled. I don't know what they were feeling inside, but probably troubled, or at least they were inquisitive. We have to check this out now. Test yourself on this. Have you ever walked up to a door, and you have to go through that door, and there are people waiting by that door? And so you walk up, and you kind of wait with them, and you're chewing on this, and you think to yourself, I wonder if that's actually locked. And then you test the door, and it's like, and it's locked. And then everybody else is like, really, are you serious? You thought we're just standing here. Okay, so that's how we're going to play this. All right, So you know that urgent sense, i got to check this out. So I think Peter and John just needed to go and check it out for themselves. No offense, Mary. We just want to see. 
This is important for us. I think we've all been there. And then John mentioned this little detail, and I'm not sure why he mentioned it, but he said, both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. John wrote that about himself. He outran Peter. Maybe Peter was overweight and out of shape. I don't know. Maybe John had a 4-5-40. He just blazing speed. I don't know. Maybe he wanted to tell the world about his athletic prowess. I don't know. But more reasonably, it was probably that John was younger than Peter, that he was younger. We don't know why that detail's in there, but that makes the Bible cool because it, it'll surprise you sometimes. Um, read Mark and the account of the, the garden. Uh, when John got to the tomb, he didn't go in. Something stopped him. I don't know what it was. He simply stooped down and he looked into the tomb and he noticed the linen claws lying there. No body. Now, if grave robbers took Jesus' corpse, they would have taken everything and they would have taken it quickly. Maybe even the spices as well. There would be no time to unwrap the body. No purpose, actually, of doing it either. It would have been easier to take Jesus as is, just get out of there before anybody can see us. But there lied the linen cloths, and the face cloth was folded up in another place. Folded. Takes time to fold things. Have you ever tried to fold one of the the fitted sheet? That's ridiculous. That's impossible. Mine just comes a garbled mess. So anyway, it wasn't stolen. The body wasn't stolen. No signs of haste. And where Peter was wary, or I'm sorry, John was wary, Peter, man, he just was forward. That was the kind of guy that that he was. When Peter got to the tomb, being prone to impulse, he just rushed right in, right into the tomb to check things out. And he looked around, and he saw the linen cloths, and he saw the face cloth, and he didn't see a body. Where was the body of their Lord? Where did it go? And in the Old Testament law, it was necessary to have two witnesses to verify a claim. Not only did Peter and John witness that Jesus' body was no longer in the tomb, but several women did as well. Even Roman soldiers could attest to the fact that the body was not in the tomb. There were repercussions for the Roman soldiers at that point. Can you see that the body of Jesus is no longer in the tomb? The tomb has been empty for close to 2,000 years. Multiple people saw the empty tomb. Many people died trying to spread the message of an empty tomb. So please intellectually grab what I'm about ready to say. Anyone who rejects the resurrection of Jesus Christ bears the burden of proof to provide a better explanation for an empty tomb to provide concrete evidence to overturn reliable eyewitness testimonies from the closest friends of Jesus that have stood the test of time for close to 2,000 years. A good question is this. What makes skeptics today so confident that their perspective trumps the historical perspective of people who were actually there? Think that through. Unbelief is not only historically and intellectually uninformed, it's arrogant. It's arrogant. 
If you want to know the truth, you need to go to the most trustworthy sources. We're taught this in school. We have to go to the primary sources. We must see in the Bible the compelling accounts of those who experience the events. We must allow their voices to pull us back into the events and to reconstruct for us the truth. Don't you want the truth? So we can see and believe. That's what they're trying to do. Even more, see that Jesus Christ is alive. See that Jesus Christ is alive. This is why we treasure Jesus more than anything else. This is why we celebrate Jesus together every Sunday throughout the year unless there is a massive blizzard and then we have to shut the show down. This is why we love and serve Jesus. Jesus is alive. Thank you. Jesus is alive. Amen. Amen. He died, but he came back to life, and he's still alive 2,000 years later, and in 20 billion years, Jesus will still be alive. If Jesus is still dead, please understand this. If his body is somewhere on earth, Christianity is absurd and useless. But if Jesus is still alive, and he is, then we have good reason to give our lives to him. The resurrection proves that everything Jesus ever said was completely right. And I'll gladly trust a guy who describes the details of his death, dies, chooses to come back and reveal himself as he said. For me, that makes Jesus dependable. I will trust him. When John and Peter found the empty tomb, verse 9 says, For as yet they did not understand the scriptures, the scripture rather, that he must rise from the dead. Interesting. What scripture are they talking about? The Old Testament. Did you know that the Old Testament predicted the resurrection of Jesus Christ, God's Son? This might be a newsflash, but the Old Testament is about Jesus. And God said through the Old Testament that Jesus would become alive again. Peter and John missed a lot of the Old Testament connections. I miss a ton of those connections. You probably do too. It's deep. But Peter and John got it when they got the Holy Spirit. They started to make those connections. After Peter and John investigated the empty tomb, verse 10 tells us that they both went back to their homes. And this is so interesting because if you make a connection to earlier in John, who went home to be cared for by John, Mary. Mary, Jesus' dear mother Mary was in John's home and I bet John went home and said, your son is alive. Don't hang your head, dear Mary. Your son is alive. This is so exciting. Luke wrote something in Acts that is worth mentioning at this point. This is what he wrote to them, referring to the apostles that Jesus had chosen. He presented himself alive after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Don't miss this. Jesus presented himself alive. His body was alive again, heart beating again, blood circulating again, Lungs 
breathing again, and he showed himself alive by many proofs. The Greek word for proofs is tekmerion, which means evidence that removes doubt, evidence that verifies something. Jesus left no question that he had resurrected from the dead. He proved it over the course of 40 days. Dr. D.A. Carson noted this, most of the early witnesses came to faith in Jesus as the resurrected Lord, not because they could not find his corpse, but because they found Christ alive. An empty tomb taken by itself leaves a bunch of questions, right? Until you see, oh my goodness, that's Jesus. He's still alive. Well, case closed. Let's go to the tomb again because we didn't hit an important verse, verse 8. When John stepped into that empty tomb and considered what he was looking at, something happened in his heart. Verse 9 is about John, and it says, Then the other disciple, that's John, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. He saw and believed. He saw the empty tomb. He saw the burial clothes. And the Spirit of God worked in his heart And he believed that Jesus was alive before he saw Jesus alive. John believed before he ever saw Jesus alive. He heard Jesus' teaching before. He saw the empty tomb, and that was it. He was convinced. He is alive. But eventually, John's faith, God very graciously brought Jesus and And John was able to see him, which firmed it up even more. If you read the books that John wrote, the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and Revelation, all bestsellers throughout history, you can tell the resurrection changed this man forever. The resurrection gave John a new life. John wanted you to walk in the same newness of life that he had experienced through the resurrection He knew, John knew, that only the resurrected Christ could give you that new life, could give you that new start, could wipe away everything in your past and set you on a new course. John knew not everyone would believe his testimony. He knew people would laugh at his book. But he also knew the truth, and he also knew that God would open many people's eyes to the truth. They would believe, and they would be changed forever. And so he wrote that story being faithful to the details, as God's Spirit led him to do it, and he trusted in the power of God to transform people from inside to out. So here is what I pray that the Holy Spirit of God graciously accomplishes for you. See the resurrection, believe the resurrection, and walk in newness of life. What does it mean to see the resurrection when it already happened? To see the resurrection is to look into the Bible and have the Holy Spirit of God bring the resurrection of Jesus to life in your heart and mind. God opens the hearts, the eyes of our hearts to see it. To believe the resurrection is to not only intellectually believe it, you have to intellectually believe it, but also to put your faith in it as the power of life for you. And to walk in newness of life is to be fundamentally transformed by the resurrection, the power of the resurrection, and to to actually live differently because of it. To, To walk in newness of life, to have a brand new life because Jesus raised from the dead. Now, sometime this week, I want you to read Romans 6. 
Read Romans 6, please. I told you, Good Friday, to read Romans 6. Don't feel guilty if you didn't. Just read it, all right? Sometime. Because I think it will greatly help you understand what it means to walk in the newness of life. Romans 6, 4 says this. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. The glorious power of God that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that helps you walk a new walk, live a new life, get a fresh start. It's the same power. If that power can bring a dead man out of the tomb, that power can help you conquer the sins that are in your life and live to righteousness. When you see the glory of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and you put your faith in Christ alone, you die to sin. The old you is slaughtered on the cross with Christ. The old you is done. The old you is past. It's behind you. And the new you lives in freedom from sin. That's what the Bible teaches. But by God's grace and gift of faith, you are united to Christ in his death. But follow me here. Jesus is still alive. He's he's not dead anymore. Therefore, by faith, you are united to Christ in his resurrection as well as in his death. And if our old self has died with Christ in his crucifixion, then our new self is alive with Christ in his resurrection. God makes us spiritually alive because of Christ. And Romans 6.11 says this, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. God makes you alive through Christ. And Christ's life causes you to walk in the newness of life. Christ's life is the power you need. And what does that newness of life look like? Look to Romans 6. Walking in the newness of life is, number one, not living in sin anymore. Because, number two, Christ has brought the body of sin to nothing and freed you from enslavement to sin. You are free in Christ. Number three, walking in newness of life is living with Christ now. Number four, walking in newness of life means you present yourself to God as an instrument of righteousness, not an instrument of unrighteousness, but of righteousness. Unrighteousness, that was the old you. That's lifeless. The new you is one to righteousness. Number five, it means you're now under grace and sin has no dominion over you. Number six, to walk in the newness of life is to no longer be a slave to sin, but to be a slave to righteousness, to be a slave to God, obeying God's word from your heart. Number seven, walking in newness of life means you are being sanctified and being made holy by God and sanctification leads to a glorious end called eternal life. Paul is clear. The resurrection of Jesus Christ causes people to live a brand new life. So, if you're living like everybody else, if you're living like the world, and your old self is still alive, and there is no newness to your life, no freshness, then my friend, in love, I just want to tell you, you haven't seen and believed in the resurrection. But the good news is, anyone who truly 
truly looks and sees and believes in the resurrection, they will, by God's grace, walk in the newness of life by the power of the Holy Spirit in them. It's not just you cleaning up your life. That's not what Christianity is about. It's about God's grace gushing on you and totally transforming you as his spirit produces righteousness in you. That gives glory to God. That gives us our greatest joy. If you're already a Christian and you're like, I see I believe, I'm walking in newness of life, but man, does it grow tiring. I just want you to know that the resurrection, the power of the resurrection is what will help you to stay the course and to keep walking in the newness of life and to walk even newer and even newer as he renews you and strengthens you. God's not done renewing your life. Keep seeing, keep believing, keep walking in newness of life as God conforms you to the image of his son. Keep going. Keep going. You can do it because God can do it in you. Keep going. And my hope is that you see and my hope is that you believe and my hope is that you walk in the newness of life and find in that life your greatest joy and pleasure in Jesus Christ. Father, you are so good. Thank you so much for just being truthful. When we read your Bible, we know that you're telling us the truth. It proves itself over and over again by tons of evidence. So God, it's not evidence that changes people's lives ultimately. It's the Holy Spirit. It's you, God. It's your grace. So God, we're a mixed bunch today. We have people here that so cherish you deeply, that see and believe that the resurrection is at the center of their life and and they're trying so hard and they're growing discouraged sometimes and struggling with sin. God, would you lift those people up and help them to, to keep pressing on, to keep seeing, keep believing, keep walking in the newness of life as the Spirit gives them power. And I'm sure there's people here today that don't, they can't see. They don't believe. They might say they believe, but they really don't because they have no new life. They have the old life. And perhaps, God, by your grace, one of those people, maybe two, maybe three, want a new start today. This isn't rocket science, God. You've made it very clear what they need to do. They need to turn from their sin, repent, and trust in Christ alone to save them and begin to obey you by the power of the Spirit. That's it. So God, I pray that that happens here. No one needs to walk an aisle. No one needs to raise a hand. They simply need to turn from their sin and trust in Christ. And when they do that, they will walk in newness of life because you will empower them. So I pray, God, the same grace and power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same grace that every single person in here today needs desperately, the Christian and the non-Christian. We need you to show up and to help us walk in newness of life. And so I pray that you do it in our hearts. And God, may these last few moments together singing to you be so precious and loud that we could enjoy in our hearts what it is we're singing about for your glory alone. In Jesus' name, amen.